You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, as we have gathered here for this time in the seminar, Lord, we are thankful for this time. I'm thankful for those who have gathered here in person. I'm also thankful for those viewing the live stream or who will view this sometime later as an archived program. And Lord, as we journey together in this study of Your Word, I pray that You would lead us. I pray that You would help me, Lord, to speak to speak on Your behalf, to be articulate, Lord. And I pray that those who are here are able to understand. And may we all, Lord, at the end of this seminar, sense the high calling that You have placed upon each of us as individuals. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just so you uh, are aware, this morning I do not have any slides. I will have slides the next, uh, the next four days. But if you have your Bibles, that's a very good thing because we're going to be in the Bible. And the subject matter is Christ's method alone, rediscovering the original plan. Now, let us begin with that Christ's method alone. It is probably one of the most quoted paragraphs from the Spirit of Prophecy in Ministry of Healing, page 143. You know it well, right? What is it? What does it say? Christ's method alone will what? will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed His sympathy to them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. And then what did He do? And then He bade them, follow Me. Probably at least ten years ago, if not longer, I began asking questions about this passage, and we will come back to this passage because I believe there's much more to this passage than the isolated paragraph that we quote. But here's the journey I began, and the journey was this. If we believe that the spirit of prophecy is what the spirit of prophecy says she is, the little light pointing to the greater light, or the lesser light rather, pointing to the greater light, then this very, shall I call it, exclusive paragraph, Christ's method alone. And I know in our 21st century culture, exclusivity is not something that plays very well. But this paragraph is very exclusive. Christ's method alone. That means it is unaccompanied by any other method will give true success. And if the spirit of prophecy articulates that and is the lesser light pointing to the greater light, then this is the question I began asking myself. Is there anywhere in the Scriptures where Jesus articulates His method alone? And that's the journey we're going to take this morning to rediscover the original plan. I'd like for us to go to Matthew chapter 24. And again, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to follow along. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, when we talk about Matthew chapter 24, what is Matthew chapter 24 typically when we give a study? What is the subject matter of Matthew 24? Signs of the times. And don't worry, I'm not going to tell you it's about something different. It is about the signs of the times. 
But it's a bit fascinating that right in the midst of the signs of the times, Jesus says something. And please understand, when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not questioning inspiration. I'm simply telling you my thought processes that I was having. There is a verse that seemingly comes out of place. And that verse is Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. And again, you likely know it well. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. And so preceding that, you have Christ's warnings about false prophets, false Christs, wars, rumors of war, and all of these things. And then all of a sudden, kind of in the midst of that, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. And then Jesus goes back to the signs of the times, talking about the abomination of desolation and these kinds of things. And so now I have another question that I'm asking. So I'm asking this question, does Jesus ever articulate his method alone in Scripture And now, and by the way, what this is going to feel like is that we're going to leave a lot of loose ends, and then before the end, we're going to tie them all together. And so I read this verse, which this verse is the most time particular of the second coming of Jesus. When the gospel goes to the ends of the world, then the end will come. Now, we don't know when that will be, but it is very time specific. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And then the end will come. Then Jesus will come. Would you say that that's an important thing to know? Absolutely. Would you say that that's an important mission to participate in? 100%. But when we're reading Matthew 24, 14, and by the way, I want this to be very interactive. And while we're in the auditorium, and I want us to be interactive. So don't be afraid. Even if you have a question, don't be afraid to raise your hand. But here's the question I have. When you look at Matthew 24, 14, and if I ever ask you a trick question, I will tell you in advance that it's a trick question. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when you look at that passage, is there any word that stands out to you in that passage? It's a small word, but it's a very important word in the passage. What's that? Then, okay, that's a good word. All, all the world's a very important world. Preach. Very important, okay, witness, a very essential piece. So this, this, this verse is loaded. You can preach on this verse for, for weeks on end. But there's an even smaller word. Because you talked about preach. What are you preaching? What gospel? This gospel. Now, I want you to take note. And I fully believe in inspiration. And I believe when Matthew recorded these words of Jesus... Under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew could have written a number of different words there. He could have written the word the. He could have written a. But he did not. He wrote the word this. Now, I know it's early in the morning. What part of speech is this? I'll help you. Don't worry. Grammar wasn't my favorite lessons in school either. It's, it, okay, so somebody said a pronoun. It actually can pro, it, it does function as a pronoun. It is a demonstrative. And it could function as an adjective or a pronoun, but here it's functioning as a pronoun. And some of you are saying, okay, I, I came to learn about God's original pronoun, not pronouns. But the word this is absolutely vital in this passage. Because once again, Matthew is being particular, exclusive. Because later, what would Paul write in Galatians? There are some that are preaching... 
another gospel, but it is not a gospel at all. And so when Jesus spoke, Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples understood this gospel. This gospel of the kingdom will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. Not another gospel, but this gospel. So now we are raising an additional question. What is this gospel? You see, often when we have this discussion about the gospel, what is the gospel? We will typically have a very ethereal, theoretical, or theological discussion. What is this gospel? So let's first be particular about that word. The word gospel in the original Greek is the Greek word euangelion. That verse is very important prior to the New Testament. In classical Greek, it was used as the announcement. It, it was to announce the victory. And so if there were a battle, and a battle were going on on the front lines, and the front lines was victorious, a rider on a white horse would return to announce the victory. Uwangalion. So Jesus is here saying this gospel, this particular announcement of victory will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. So now we're going to ask the question, what is this gospel? But to answer a question before we ask this question and try to answer it, is this verse out of place? And of course it's not because it's inspired and God chose that it would be there. What is the verse prior to, the two verses prior to this passage in verse 14 say? In verse 12, what does the Bible say? And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So as a part of the signs of the times, Jesus describes a time in this earth's history where the Bible says there will be a rise in what? Lawlessness. In the original, it is the, the Greek word antinomos. Nomos is the word for law. Anti, we know this from the word antichrist, means against or in place of. Jesus describes a time in earth's history where there would be a great push against his law and an attempt to actually replace his law. And the resultant action of that or accompanying that is what? The love of many growing cold. And, and, and the word picture painted by the original Greek language. Have you ever sat in front of a campfire until that campfire has no longer any flames and there's just those orange, red, hot embers in the, in, the, in the campfire? Have you ever sat there for long enough where those orange embers begin to darken on the edges until and finally there's just a little glow in the center and then that little glow will kind of flitter and flutter until it goes out and then there's a little puff of smoke that comes up from that coal as it's extinguished. In the original Greek, that's the word picture being painted. And so Jesus, in speaking of the signs of the time, says there will be a time in which God's law will be something will come against it or try to replace it, while at the same time, the love of many will grow cold. And if I can say it this way, there will be a time in earth's history where there is a rise in lawlessness and a rise in 
lovelessness. The word there, love, by the way, is the Greek word agape. Now, often when we talk about agape love, we talk about agape as being God's love toward humanity. And I think that's a fair definition. God's unconditional or no strings attached love toward humanity. But what we need to understand is the word agape, the word love there, is more often used to describe the love between human beings than it is between God and human beings. And so this is a time where God's law will be pushed against or attempted to be replaced, and at the same time, the love between humanity will simply grow cold. And now 24.14 makes more sense. Is God surprised by this development on the earth? He is not. What is God's answer to the rise of lawlessness and the rise of lovelessness? Oh, see, this is good. You're all with me here. This gospel. So the, 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 the answer to the rise of lawlessness, the answer to the rise of lovelessness is this gospel. So now we need to understand what is this gospel? Because I believe as we study, this gospel is vastly more practical than we often make it. Because like I said, we typically will have a theological discussion about what this gospel is. Now keep your minds on Matthew 24. Keep your finger in Matthew 24. Because now we need to answer what is this gospel. But before we answer that question, I want to tie one more thing in. And then it's all going to come together. Because I want us to understand this in the context of an end time message. So while you keep your finger in Matthew 24, 14, let us go to the last book of the Bible. Revelation, in particular, Revelation chapter 12. What is Revelation chapter 12 in its largest sense? The overview of Revelation chapter 12, what is that? The church and the dragon, war, but, but a, a larger context for that, that's, both of those are correct answers. It is an overview of the great controversy. From its beginning in heaven to its continuation where? On the earth. Let me just hit a pause button. Sometimes when we talk about the book of Revelation, we get very, we get very mystical about our understanding of the book of Revelation because we isolate texts. I want us to all have this good news. When we read the book of Revelation, let us never forget the overall theme and summary of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is God's last testimony to his people with this simple message. Jesus wins. The devil loses. Choose to be on Jesus' side. Let me be very clear. I'm not saying that the subject matter of the seals, the churches, and the trumpets is unimportant. It is. But sometimes we get so lost in the smaller portions of the book of Revelation, we lose sight of the big picture. And the reason I'm telling you this is because what I'm about to share with you was something that did not become evident to me until one day uh, my, my wife and I happened to be at the Creation Museum down in Kentucky and there was a man there by the name of Tom Mayer. He is not a Seventh-day Adventist, 
but he has the entire book of Revelation memorized. And so he was reciting the book of Revelation from memory at one sitting at one time. Takes just over an hour to hear the entirety of the book of Revelation. And it's an amazing change in perspective to listen through the entire book of Revelation in one sitting. And by the way, that experience is probably the experience of most first century Christians because many first century Christians couldn't read. And that's why it is a letter to seven churches where the elder over the church would have gotten up and read the book of Revelation aloud. There is real value, by the way, and that's something I'm doing in my personal devotion, and I'm going off on a slight tangent here. There's a real value in listening to the Word. There are things that you will notice about a text that you probably have read over and over again that you'll catch when you're listening. So I've been listening, I've been listening through the entire Bible during my devotional time in the morning. But bringing us back to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is this overview of the great controversy which begins in, the earth, begins in heaven and then continues on the earth. And in its continuation on the earth, my dear brother over here said, the, the primary subject matter becomes the battle between the dragon and the woman. And that, that comes to its kind of pinnacle moment in the closing verse of Revelation chapter 12. And what is that? closing verse in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 say, okay, and the dragon was what? Wroth or angry uh, with the woman. And what did he do? And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring or the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Why was the dragon angry with the woman? Because they keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus and if we place this and apply this to its historical context, the dragon, absolutely the dragon is Satan, but at that point in time in the history of Christianity, the dragon is utilizing a power. What power is the dragon working through? The power of Rome. And how is Rome handling the new Christian church? She is persecuting the Christian church. Persecuting the Christian church with a great intensity. I've had the opportunity to go to Rome actually three times, twice on the tour that Laurel uh, and Gerard Domstig do, the great controversy tour. When you go to Rome, it is a very sobering experience. We can talk about persecution, we can read about persecution, and it is quite another thing to go to the Mamertine prison where Paul was imprisoned and sit there where he was. Because see, our modern minds have been affected by these things and so we think prison and we think three square meals a day, a clean cell where everything's taken care of and you're worked toward rehabilitation. This Roman prison where Paul was, in order to get to the prison, you had to go through a hole in the floor and there was a 20-foot drop down to the floor of the prison. So if you survived that... Then you got to take up residence in what was essentially carved out rock. There was no bathroom facility in the Mamertine prison. So think about it. Dark, damp, no bathroom facilities, and you're down there with people. You're down there with people that were bad people. 
Paul, of course, was being persecuted for his faith. When you start looking at these things, when we talk about being persecuted, I, I don't think we really realize what persecution really is. But the dragon through Rome is persecuting Christians in the Circus Maximus, which was the place for the games. There was one night where Nero wanted the games to continue into the evening, but of course, lights had not been yet invented. So he then invented what he thought would be the first lights. And he took Christians and he had these Christians dipped in tar, placed them upon poles and lit them on fire. So the games could continue. But here's the problem with what the dragon was doing. The plan backfired. There are testimonies from the Circus Maximus where Christians were being martyred in the games. And then people in the stands watching these people die for their faith made decisions to become Christians on the spot. And so the, the dragon's grand plan of persecuting the church backfired. The Roman historian Tertullian says the blood of martyrs was as seed to the church. The church exploded in growth. And so the dragon is angry. And the dragon is in particularly angry with the remnant of her seed. Those who have returned to that original faith that kept people faithful in the midst of persecution. And it says that he went to make war. When you do a study of the original Greek, that word went, very interestingly, everywhere else is translated went away. But if you read it went away in this verse, it doesn't make sense, does it? And he went away to make war. It doesn't make sense, right? What do you do when you make war? What do you do? You attack, right? You go toward, you attack. But the dragon, it says, he went, and it even makes sense when you just use the word went, he went to make war. Okay, where did he go to? Why doesn't it say the dragon attacked the woman? Now we have to remember the Bible as it was originally written was not written with chapter and verse division. Chapter and verse division did not come until later in the 14th and 15th century. Some 1,500 years after the Bible was written. In fact, the joke among scholars is that the man who was doing chapter and verse division was riding in a cart on a very bumpy row because of the randomness of where chapters and verses are placed. But now keep this in mind because we're asking a question and don't worry, we're going to tie these all these loose ends up. The dragon went. He didn't attack, he went. Where did he go? Where did the dragon go? What does verse 1 of chapter 13 say, which is the very next words that the apostle John wrote? And he went to make war. And, what, what, and what's the very next thing that John sees? It's not a trick question. It's, the Bible says right there. What does it say? And I stood on the sand of the sea, and what did he see? A beast rising from the sea. Where did the dragon go? Or excuse me, yeah, where did the dragon go? The dragon went to go get his two friends. The beast that rises from the sea and the beast that rises from the land. And, you, and somebody keeps saying, the church, he went to go get... He did. Because now he changed his tactic. No longer was he going to assault from the front. But he was going to go to the back door. And he was going to slip in the back door. That back door's name is compromise. You see, the dragon needed a new tactic, and so he went to go get his coalition. The two others. The beast that rises from the sea and the beast that rises from the land. And don't, don't let 
the analogous reality slip from you. Three of them. He goes and finds the false trinity. What does the dragon want to do according to Isaiah 14? He wants to ascend. And he wants his throne to be that above who? The Most High. The dragon has aspirations of being the father. The sea beast. The false church. We identify her as the Antichrist. She is, she's identified as the man of sin. She's identified in Daniel chapter 7 as well. Her ministry lasts before she is mortally wounded. How long? 1,260 days of prophetic time. 1,260 days of literal time is how long? Three and a half years. Whose ministry was three and a half years? Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. The beast that rises from the sea, a false Christ figure. And then the beast that rises from the earth has one mission. To get all to worship the beast that rises from the sea. Even calls fire down from heaven. The false Holy Spirit. And so Revelation 12, 17 says that the dragon was angry with the woman and changed his tactic, now goes through the back door and slips through the back door of compromise. And we don't have time in our seminar to talk about the compromises that took place. But once again, if, if you read history, you can see where these compromises took place. For example, just to give you one example, amongst Roman soldiers, there was an emerging religion that was being followed by many of the soldiers. That emerging religion was called Mithraism. Mithras, who was the son of Tammuz in the Roman gods. Mithras, according to legend, was born of a virgin birth. You start looking at the imagery of Mithraism, in particular, the practice of worshiping Mithras on Sunday, you now begin to see the easy compromises of stretching to make Christianity more palatable to the Roman populace. But that's another seminar altogether. The beast that rises from the sea what is one of the things that she does other than persecute the saints? According to Daniel chapter 7, what does she trample underfoot? Tramples the law of God. According to Daniel chapter 8, what does this power try to do? Change times and laws. And then the beast that rises from the sea makes a legislative action because that beast that rises from the land, rather, the beast that rises from the land, the Bible says that what does it look like? It looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. And how does it speak like a dragon? If anyone does not worship the beast or its image, they will not be able to do what? And what will happen to them? They will be persecuted to death. Don't miss this now. God's government is fundamentally founded on a principle, and that principle is love. And in order for love to truly be love, love must give us the opportunity to say yes, but also to say no. It is the principle of free will. 
That is not how the government of Satan works, though, is it? The government of Satan is very simple. Worship or die. Don't miss now what we're about to tie together. Revelation 13 demonstrates the end time scenario where there is a rise in lawlessness and a rise in lovelessness. We are seeing all of this, by the way, in its infancy right now. Believe what I believe, accept how I am, or you will be persecuted. But once again, I will ask you the question, is God surprised by any of this? No. What is God's answer in Revelation to the rise of lawlessness in Revelation 13 and the rise of lovelessness in Revelation 13? What's God's answer? Okay, now my brother here said this gospel, which means you're tying things together, which is wonderful. But in the book of Revelation, it doesn't call it this gospel. In the book of Revelation, it calls it something else. What comes right after Revelation 13? Not a trick question. What comes after Revelation 13? Revelation 14. And yeah, somebody said the three angels' message. What's the first thing that happens before the three angels' message? You're given a picture of the 144,000. By the way, this is, this, is, this is the flow of the book of Revelation. Great dissonance is, is brought to us because we see the rise of the sea bees, the rise of the land bees. We see that people will be persecuted unto death. And we say, oh my, what's going to happen? And God says, here are the 144,000. Why? 144,000. Why? Because there will be someone saved. And then he tells us how he saved them. So in the midst of the rise of the lawlessness, in the midst of the rise of lovelessness, what was God's answer? And then I saw an angel in the midst of heaven having what? The everlasting gospel. Friends, I believe Matthew 24, 12 to 14 describes the very exact time period as Revelation chapter 12 through 14. And that the everlasting gospel of Revelation chapter 14 is the identical subject matter of this gospel of Matthew 24, 12 or excuse me, Matthew 24, 14. Is everybody checking with me so far? But we still have to answer a question. What is this gospel? What is the everlasting gospel? This everlasting gospel that according to Revelation chapter 14, 6, and 7 will lead people, it says, because the everlasting gospel goes to who? To those who dwell on the earth. And just in case we're confused about who that is, it says to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That's everybody. Who does this gospel go to? All the world. This is a universal message. This universal message, according to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, is a message that has a loud voice that says to fear God and give glory to Him. Worship the God of heaven. The hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. A call to worship the Creator. And no doubt that this has reference back to the Sabbath commandment. But I will tell you, my dear friends, there is even a greater depth to this that we have often missed. And what is that? What is the core of this gospel? And here's what I'm going to ask you. Because remember, the word gospel is the word announcement of the good news of victory. Is there ever a place, somebody said Christ is coming, and you are absolutely correct, but that's only a portion. 
Is there ever a place where Jesus clearly articulated how he would announce the good news of his victory? I want you to think now through the Gospels. Any place in the Gospels where Jesus draws a line in the sand and he says, this is what my ministry is all about. Okay, let me just now, let's walk through this. I think some of you have just said it. When was Jesus anointed for ministry? When did Jesus begin his work as Messiah? At his baptism. Where is his baptism recorded? In what chapter of the Bible? You're in the wrong gospel. Well, I mean, it's recorded in several gospels, but where do we know the exact year in which Jesus was baptized? That would, that would be a better. Luke, Luke chapter three, right? And Jesus is baptized. And we know according to Acts chapter 10, this is when Jesus is anointed for ministry. And then what happens immediately after the baptism of Jesus? He goes into the wilderness and his faith is tested. And the defining moment of, 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 of his faith is that he leans on God and not on his own understanding. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do not tempt the Lord thy God. Right? Jesus goes through all of these temptations with one simple principle, which we can draw from Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The word there, lean, is translated in other places in the Old Testament as rely. The word picture of this word lean is someone with a crutch who is leaning with all their weight on one crutch. Somebody's saying, I got you, okay? I'm glad you got me because I spent almost two years on crutches when I, I, I tell people when I went to high school, I had the opportunity to play football or to join the marching band and four knee surgeries later, I chose wrong. Uh, and so I spent, uh, just in case you didn't get that, I played football. And so when you are using crutches, if you use crutches effectively, what are you doing? You put all your weight on the crutch and none of the weight on your injury. And so what is God saying in Proverbs chapter 3? Don't put one bit of weight on yourself. Why? Because you will collapse under the pressure. Where do we place all of our weight we place it upon God. And so the faith of Jesus, the faith of Jesus is that constant dependence upon God, which is, by the way, manifest in its fullest in the Garden of Gethsemane. As the weight of the sins of the world. And sometimes we underestimate what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. We focus a lot on the physical pain. And he went through extraordinary physical pain. But Isaiah 53 says, our grief and our sorrow was placed upon him. Have you ever gone through a time where you have gone through extraordinary grief in your own life? And I want you to imagine that now. I, I'm not a science and I had somebody correct me and so I haven't checked this, but so I'll just use it. Because I was questioning how, how many people have lived in the history of the world. And this man came up to me and he says, they estimate that some 20 billion people have lived throughout time. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I'm not a scientist. But let's just say for a moment that's correct. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had the grief and the sorrow of 20 billion people placed upon him all at once. It's no wonder why he prayed three times. If there is any other way, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then he ended every time 
What did he end with? Not my will, but thy will be done. So he goes through that experience in the wilderness and he comes out of that experience in the wilderness and where did Jesus go? He went back to his hometown, right? He went to Nazareth. And there in Nazareth, he went to the synagogue. You remember, right? What day did he go to the synagogue? On the Sabbath. And that's the, we often quote that text to talk about how Jesus kept the Sabbath. And there Jesus in Luke chapter 4, receives the scroll and he does the scripture reading. And in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then a few moments later, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And here's the amazing thing about this. As I was doing my research on this, and as this began to come together and make complete sense, as this Jesus announcing this is his mission, scholars outside of even the Adventist church say that this is the passage where Jesus drew the line in the sand and said this is his mission statement. Where is Jesus reading from here? Isaiah and what chapter? 61. And then he parenthetically inserts from Isaiah 58. Now I'm not going to tell you. I want you to look at it. And then somebody to tell me. It is from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 in particular. In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, if you go and read it, Jesus left something out. He did not read a portion of that. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. What is it that Jesus did not read? And again, this is not a trick question. It's right there in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. What is it that he did not read? Verse 2 of Isaiah 61, you're right, my brother, is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus said that. This is what he did not say. And the day of vengeance of our God. Let me be clear on what I'm not saying. Will there be a day of vengeance? Yes, there will be. So just to put you at ease, I'm not telling you that there won't be a day of vengeance. But Jesus, in announcing his mission and his ministry, left that off. Why did Jesus leave that off? What does John 3.17 say? See, John 3.17, what does Jesus say? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm guessing my good friend David Fiedler in just a few moments is going to talk a little bit more about this word here. So I don't want to steal too much of his thunder. But the word there saved in John 3.17 is the Greek word sozo. Sozo is translated deliverance from sin as it is there in John 3.17. But in all other places in the Gospels, it is translated to be made whole or to be made well. The ministry of Jesus on this earth was not a ministry of condemnation. That word there, condemned, by the way, is also translated in the New Testament as judge. 
You see, Jesus, when he came his first time, was not on a ministry of judgment. He was in a ministry of making people whole. And he articulates how he was going to do that in Luke chapter 4. And we, time does not allow for us to go through each of these. But I want to identify just a few key things so we're clear on the ministry of Jesus. Because right now in the Adventist church, we have a tension that has been created that is a false tension. This is the tension that's been created in the Adventist church in these days. And that is a tension between what many people will call kindness or compassion ministries and gospel or proclamation ministries. And so people will say, either you do an evangelistic series or you have a soup kitchen. And friends, I'm going to be very, very strong here because I believe this with all my heart. Proclamation ministries without kindness and compassion ministries is not the complete gospel. And kindness and compassion ministries without proclamation ministries is also not the full gospel. We must be clear because the devil would have us be in one rut or the other. He doesn't want us in the middle doing the ministry as Jesus did it. How would Jesus do his ministry? What does it begin with? How is Jesus going to announce the good news of victory? What is this gospel? What is the everlasting gospel? First, to preach or proclaim the gospel to the poor. The word there, poor, yes, can be socioeconomically disadvantaged, but it is more likely a reference to those who are poor in spirit. My dear friends, we live in a world, because people will say this to me all the time, and many of you are well aware, okay, next next. March, I am coming to Lansing, Michigan, and we will be doing an evangelistic series. And there are going to be opportunities for the churches around Michigan to gather together the resources we'll be using there as a statewide effort to proclaim this gospel and the everlasting gospel over the course of the next year. But let us be very, very clear. Every place I go, it doesn't matter where I go. I worked in Canada for five years. I've worked overseas. It doesn't matter where you go. People will always say this to me. Pastor, you don't understand. This is a very secular place. (laughs) We live in a secular world. We did an evangelistic series in Calgary, Alberta in 2016. Calgary, Alberta is considered the Bible belt of Canada. Less than 50% of people claim Christianity there. Let that sink in. In the Bible belt in the United States, 75 to 80% of people claim Christianity. Calgary is an extraordinarily secular place. It doesn't matter where we are, whether we're rural, whether we're inner city, we live in a secular world. But here is the reality. People are poor in spirit everywhere and they're trying to figure out how to fill the void. One of the richest people on the earth, one of the most technologically advanced people on the earth, Elon Musk the CEO of Tesla. He's also the CEO of another company. What other company is the CEO of? SpaceX. Now let me be very clear. I'm not against space exploration, so don't take that away. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid, and I tweeted at Elon Musk and said, hey, listen, you need somebody to ride in one of your rockets? I'd love to be the first chaplain in the space. Have you ever gone and read about his goal of getting to Mars? Why does Elon Musk want to go to Mars? 
Because Elon Musk, even from his secular point of view, understands one critical thing. He sees what's going on around, and he sees this world is coming to an end. And his solution is to colonize Mars. The resources of this earth are burning up. Even in his, and I don't know Elon Musk's religion. I, I have no idea. He may be a religious man. I have no idea. But from an outsider's perspective of reading the literature, Elon Musk is looking for an escape plan. And I will tell you, people all over the world are looking for an escape plan. And here's the question. Will we, in this earth's hour of history, be the ones that proclaim the good news of this gospel that people would understand the true escape plan? Are we going to do that? But how then are we going to have people here? He has, he, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There are many people who have been broken by religion. They have been disappointed by the church. How will we help them build confidence in the church? Some of you may have missed this in the news. But in Canada, where I lived for five years, the residential school system, which was essentially, and let me be very clear, I'm not picking on the Roman Catholics here, because there are many Christians that are guilty of this. The residential school system, which basically took the native people of Canada, we call them First Nations here in the U.S., we would call them Native Americans, and they tried to Canadianize them, stole them from their homes, robbed them from their mothers and their fathers, tried to erase from them their culture. Just here a few weeks ago in British Columbia, they found a residential school with an unmarked grave of over 230 children buried in it. And secular people read that and they say, that's why I'm not a Christian. Because if that's what Christianity does, why do I want to be a part? We live in a world that have, over the course of the last election cycle has been dominated, dominated by religious leaders making a grab for political power. Jesus came to disrupt that system and heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Captives to what? Captives to sin. The world is filled with people that are captive to all sorts of sin. And we are to proclaim the freedom from these things and addictions and all of these things. But not only do we proclaim it, it later says to set at liberty. Not only do we announce to people there are freedom from addictions, there are freedoms to the challenges of this earth that you're facing, but we're going to give you the resources to overcome. Recovery of sight to the blind. People that have been blinded through a variety of things in their life. But then it ends with to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. I want you to notice, it begins with preaching, it ends with preaching, with it being sandwiched between what we might call compassion ministries. And in the final seven minutes, I want to quickly go over, that's wonderful that that's what Jesus said he was going to do. I want to ask a more important question. What did Jesus do? If you have the book of John, just open to the book of John. There in the book of John, after chapter 1, of course, chapter 1 is where the, uh, uh, the apostle John 
it tries to articulate who Jesus is. And then in John chapter 2, where does Jesus show up? Not a trick question. Where does he show up? Yeah, the marriage in Cana, wedding in Cana. Remember, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Sozo, wholeness and healing. Jesus' ministry is to bring wholeness and healing physically, mentally, spiritually. What does he do in the wedding of Cana? What's the problem in Cana? They're about to run out of wine. I don't have time to go through all of that, but it was juice, pure juice. If they would have run out, that would have been, because we don't understand the wedding context in the 21st century, a wedding in ancient times would last over the course of several days. And if you run out of juice, this is a massive social embarrassment. What did Jesus do? He turned water into wine and he saved this young couple from the social embarrassment of running out of the pure juice of the grape. Because Jesus cares for people and their social needs. In John chapter 3, where is Jesus? Who comes to Jesus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an intellectual. Jesus cares about intellectuals. Nicodemus is a religious leader. Jesus cares about religious leaders. When did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night. If you like languages in the original Greek, the syntax of that is not only did he literally come at night, but Nicodemus came in a nighttime-ish sort of way. Nicodemus was unprepared to reveal that he, that he was kind of thinking that this guy might be the coming one. He might be the Messiah. He wasn't yet ready to reveal that. And he has this interview with Jesus where Jesus gets straight to the heart of the issue and straight to the heart of issue for Nicodemus was what? <laughs> Nicodemus, you need to be born again, my friend. When do we next hear from Nicodemus, by the way? Not until the end. Right, and I actually used to say at the crucifixion, it was right before the crucifixion because the council comes together and Nicodemus kind of makes a, he doesn't make a big defense of Jesus, but he makes a little defense of Jesus. Here's the interesting thing. In the ensuing years between the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the end, Jesus never publicly reveals Nicodemus' interest in him as Messiah. Why? Because Jesus cares for people socially, he cares for people intellectually, and he cares for people spiritually. And he knew the Holy Spirit needed to do a work in Nicodemus' life, which the Holy Spirit did. Where at the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus made full commitment and went and got the body of Jesus while the rest of the disciples hid for their lives. John chapter 4, where does Jesus show up? The well. But where was that well? Samaria. The Bible says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. If he followed the course of the rest of his Jewish compatriots, he would not have gone through Samaria. In order to get from Judea to Galilee, the straight line was right through Samaria. But the Samaritans, were, of course, were the distant cousins of the Jews. But the Jews considered Samaritans to be filthy, dirty, unclean animals. So dirty and filthy and unclean that they were unwilling to step foot on the soil of Samaria. Jesus breaks the bounds of cultural ethnic and national pride 
And then he encounters the woman. And what problems did this woman have? When was she collecting water? When do you collect water? In the morning. The well was a place of social gathering where the women would often come together and talk the news of the town. I imagine in my mind that this woman had grown tired of coming down to the well. And as she came down to the well, she would hear the hushes. Shh, she's coming. Shh. Have you ever had that moment, by the way, where you've walked in on somebody who's been talking about you and likely talking about you in a very unkind way? And as soon as you arrive, there is silence. It is the silence of guilt. The woman had grown tired of that and now she collected water at, at noontime. The woman had been married five times, so undoubtedly the woman had been at the very least verbally abused, but likely physically abused. And then the woman starts talking to Jesus and what does she talk about? This is Jacob's well. She talks about a religion of heritage. You see, you don't understand, Jesus. My father is this. So therefore, I will be saved. And Jesus ministers to her spiritual needs, her physical needs, her emotional needs, her social needs. John chapter 5, Jesus ministers to the man at the pool of Bethesda. He heals him physically. He heals him spiritually. John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. He ministers to people physically. He ministers to them spiritually. John chapter 7, Jesus ministers to his brothers and sisters, he ministers to the religious leaders. And then in John chapter 8, kind of the penultimate experience of all of this, Jesus has the woman caught in adultery cast before him. And the religious leaders say what? She needs to be stoned according to the law of Moses. And Jesus then responds with what? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he crouches down and he begins drawing something in the sand. Whatever he's drawing in the sand, is making the religious leaders mighty uncomfortable. And one by one, they leave. By the way, Ellen White makes a comment on it. The way these religious leaders were able to catch the woman in adultery was by entrapping her and committing adultery with her. They're all gone. And Jesus asks the woman a question as I draw to a close here. What does Jesus ask the woman? Where are your accusers? And what do we often say? They were all gone. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Who could have cast the first stone? Jesus. Aren't you so glad that the Bible says that Jesus, according to 1 John 2, 1, is the advocate of the saints and not the accuser of the brethren? And then what does he say to the woman? Now go and sin no more. And in that moment, this woman, who is an adulterous woman, was healed physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. So when we talk about returning to the original plan, Christ's method alone, Christ had a method and he articulated that method. He lived that method. And in these last days of earth's history, my dear brothers and sisters, God is calling the Seventh-day Adventist church to rise up and follow the ministry of Jesus. For God did not send his church into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through them might be saved. The ministry of judgment is Jesus' ministry, not ours. The ministry of healing is the call of God's last day church to proclaim, to proclaim that Jesus came, died, and has won the victory for your sins. 
And Jesus is coming again all the while ministering to the sick, ministering to the homeless, touching people's lives and helping them physically, socially, intellectually, emotionally while proclaiming that gospel message. And it is when that happens that this gospel will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that we don't have to wonder what we're supposed to do. You've made it clear. And so now, Lord, help us. Help us to realign our minds, to realign our priorities. And may every home in Michigan, may every Seventh-day Adventist in Michigan, may every Seventh-day Adventist home in Michigan, and may every Seventh-day Adventist church in Michigan be committed to this gospel of the kingdom, going to the ends of their community, going throughout the state of Michigan, throughout the United States, to all of North America and around the world, that then the end would come. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.